Have you ever been in one of those anointed emotional church services? You know, the one where the preacher's walking the aisles and kicking his leg up and spitting on the first three rows? Well, the thing about those services is it's not just the preacher that's being passionate. The crowd will be up on their feet, their arms will be in there, and people will be excited for Jesus, excited for what the Lord's doing. And the excitement even carries over. And so they go to work on Monday, and people, they tell their friends how great church was, how God moved, and how anointed the preacher was. And their friend would say, wow, that good, huh? Well, what was the sermon about? Uh, well, um, I can't remember, but it was sure good. The sermon was great. I just don't remember what it was about. See, the person could remember what the preacher said, but they sure remembered how he said it. Listen, I'm not knocking that. That's great. I love services like that. I love it when the Holy Spirit moves. But here's my point. I'm convinced that on some occasions our culture... In other words, our way of doing church can hinder the presentation of the gospel because we elevate our cultural experience equal to that of Bible doctrine. Let me say that again. We elevate our cultural experience equal to that of biblical doctrine. In other words, what I'm saying is if the doodads aren't exactly right, well, church wasn't that good. But friend, you need to understand that Jesus did not die for the American culture. Jesus did not die for the Caucasian culture. He didn't die for the African-American culture. Jesus didn't die for the Hispanic culture. Jesus died for people. But what has happened is we've almost expected that whatever flavor the church is, that church has to be the defender of that particular flavor's culture. And so we've become so culturally sensitive that we've become a church that's more interested in maintaining our particular way of doing church than we are in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, because Jesus didn't die to protect any of our special ethnic cultures or practices. He died to advance the gospel to every kindred, tongue, and tribe, and nation so that there would be one race, and that would be a redeemed race under the blood of Jesus Christ. But see, sometimes we have a hard time separating our cultural preferences from Bible doctrine. And it's not just us today. Even back in the scriptures, we see that with the Apostle Paul. Because in the Jewish culture, in order to be a legitimate Jew, men had to go through the practice of circumcision. Can someone say, ouch? So when, when the Christian Jews began to reach out to the Gentiles, they would tell them that in order to be a true follower of Jesus, you had to be circumcised. Now, can I just share this with you? That as a grown man, I would have really had to do some serious thinking about converting if that was a prerequisite. But maybe that's just me. I'm a sissy. Well, the Apostle Paul rebuked them for being legalistic. And he said that any requirement that you add to the salvation of the Gentiles other than the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ is nothing but cultural preference. 
Paul said they don't have to become a Jew before they can become a Christian. But see, there was this religious superiority among the Jews who were more interested in their culture, in the way they did things, and they were in propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, he rebuked them and said that the cultural expectation of circumcision was not necessary because this was not a New Testament biblical doctrine. But then what's interesting is you read a little bit further, and in Acts chapter 16, we find where Paul expects Timothy, who has a Greek father, he expects Timothy to be circumcised when he was starting out trying to reach unbelieving Jews. See, because Timothy needed to adapt to the culture that he was trying to reach in order to advance the gospel. And so what Paul is doing here, he is demonstrating for us a balance of how culture, how the way we do church, should not be a hindrance to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how many remember show and tell from school? Man, some of you are really old, you don't remember show and tell. Today, we're going to have a little show and tell. Now, I think pretty much all of us are familiar with the real thing, Coca-Cola, right? The real thing. Not Pepsi, not Dr. Pepper, not Mountain Dew. That's false religions. I'm here to talk about Coke, the real thing. And so I have down here Coke in a glass bottle. I have down here Coke in a can. Wait, I don't want to get the branding right, because if I don't have the branding right, they don't pay me. And last but not least, I have Coca-Cola in a bottle. I have the real thing in a glass bottle, in a tin can, and in a plastic bottle. Now, the glass bottle of Coke is reminiscent of the way my grandpa used to do church. This is the way that they did it back then in the good old days. Before they ever had this newfangled can and this ridiculous plastic bottle, they had the right way, the glass way. And if I was using that vernacular, I'd say, brethren, this is the way God intended for it to be because this is the way that God brought it and brought it on me and it happened to me when I was just a child. And if the power of God is going to fall upon the next generation, they're going to have to drink it out of a glass. Praise God. Hallelujah. The glass way. The glass bottle is reminiscent of my grandfather's church. Very rigid. It doesn't bend. If you try to make it flex, it's going to break. It's conservative. It's old school. But what's in it? Coke. Coca-Cola. Now, Coke in a can, this is representative of my generation. This is my generation. And we messed everything up that my grandfather ever stood for with the sex and drug revolutions of the 1960s and 1970s. 
because these crazy people called Jesus freaks started infiltrating the church. And hippies started getting saved, and they began to ruffle the feathers of the glass way, the right way. And so for decades, we had this argument between Coca-Cola in a can and Coca-Cola in a bottle. But what's in both containers? Coke. Well, then this current generation comes along, and they're just flexible. You drop a glass bottle, it'll break. You drop the can down, it's going to dent. But you drop this plastic bottle, and it's going to flip and flop all over the place. But what is in all three? Coke. And so many churches spend their time arguing over if Coke should be in a glass bottle or if the Coke ought to be in a can or if the Coke ought to be in a plastic bottle. But friend, listen to me. I don't think Jesus is really concerned about how we get the real thing to the lost of this world. It doesn't matter if it's in a glass or if it's in a can or if it's in a plastic bottle. We just need to get the stuff to the people who need to hear the life-saving message of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are fighting about glass, tin, or plastic, and Jesus says, just get my real thing to the people who need it. And we need to get the good news of Jesus Christ to every corner of our globe, and that means across the ocean, but that also means to our neighbor across the street. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, Jesus tells us what our purpose is on this earth. And he said, you are, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, what's interesting about this is that both salt and light are transformational. Of course, light transforms the, dark, transforms the darkness into brightness. And then once salt enters into an environment, it does three things. It flavors, it preserves, and it heals. And so as a Christian, our element of salt is that we season our culture with the flavor of God. We preserve our culture with the standards of his word. And then we bring healing to our culture, which is no doubt broken. But you have to understand that salt is useless unless it comes in contact with something. The transformation is not going to happen if salt just sits in the container. Salt has to be poured out before it can ever flavor, before it can ever preserve, before it can ever heal. Now, all of us have had problems with salt shakers. One day, the cook asked the busboy, what's taking so long filling up the salt shakers? And the boy said, well, it's hard to get the salt into these little holes. It just doesn't go in there very fast. I would tell you that 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 guy was going to school at OSU, but I, I don't want to <laughs> ruffle any feathers. I don't know. He could have been from OU. I, I, I don't know. You know, sometimes it's hard to get the salt out of those little holes, much less get it in. And that, that is a similar problem with many Christians because we are like salt in the shaker that has stuck together because of humidity. You know the kind you shake it and you shake it trying to get it out and nothing will come out? 
Well, friend, listen to me. It's only when you and I as Christians come in contact with broken humanity that like salt, which Jesus says we're the salt of the earth, that like salt we can heal and we can flavor and we can preserve our culture that we live in, which God has sent us into. As Christians, we must be salt and light to the people that we rub shoulders with. Now, I think probably most of us here know know about the Apostle Paul. Guy wrote most of the New Testament. History tells us he was short, hunchback, had had bad eyesight. And yet with all the persecutions, the imprisonments, the beatings, and the disappointments, the Apostle Paul literally altered the course of history with the passion that he used to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is still going on over 2,000 years later. And so when I thought about that, I, I I got to wondering what made Paul tick that made him so effective in a world and a culture that was as opposed to Jesus Christ as our culture is today. And I'm sure someone would point out that, well, it was his undeniable, undeniable reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And while that's true, I really don't think the power of the Spirit has diminished any time since Paul's day. And I am sure that that same power is still available to you and me today. And so I don't think that that was it. I think that there was something within the passion that Paul brought to the ministry that made the difference. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in the race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain it. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. They take care of their body. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run this way, not with uncertainty. I fight this way, not as one who simply beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. You see, the image that Paul is describing is an image from the Greek games. Now, America is fanatical about its sports. So fanatical that we start our kids playing competitive athletics at four and five years old. Three years old, okay, yeah. But Greece, Greece was even more fanatical about sports than we are. Matter of fact, the Greeks began their very calendar with the birth of the Olympic Games because of the profound impact that sports had on their culture. And so Paul evidently admired the games. But more than the games, he admired the dedication of the athletes. And Paul says, that's the spirit I want to bring into this Christian life. I want to compete like a runner in the middle of a marathon. Now, if you've ever seen a runner at the end of a marathon, you see that their face is flushed, their body is exhausted, but yet at the last hundred yards, they reach for something down deep inside of them that most of us do not have, but it's that extra kick at the end of the race that gets them across the finish line in order to win the prize. And this is the spirit. This is the drive that the Apostle Paul says he pursued the unsaved with. Not like someone huffing around the high school track trying to lose two pounds, 
But Paul says, I am competing to win the gold medal. My spirit is that of a boxer in the ring who is giving punches and taking punches, determined not to get knocked out in order to win the prize. I am not shadow boxing. I am not simply punching win. I am giving myself to the ministry like the athlete who gives up his daily Big Mac in order to win the loss for Christ. Then in verse 18, he explains what the passion was for. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Paul said in verse 16, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Now most preachers would say, because what I say is going to change the world, woe to the world if I don't preach the gospel. But Paul said, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. You see, because Paul understood that he had a commission from God to make the grace that had come into his life known to other people. And just like Paul, you and I have a commission to reach the lost, but we also have an obligation to win the lost that we know. You say, well, Mike, I don't know about that. Well, think about this. Imagine a scientist discovers the cure for cancer. But their heart is so hard that they refuse to share the cure with other people. Can you imagine finding a cure for a dreadful disease and not sharing it? I mean, you talk about a sin against humanity. Well, what I want you to realize today, friend, is that to know the gospel of Jesus Christ and not share it with others is a sin against God. To know that your sins have been forgiven and that all charges against you have been dropped because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of Calvary, to know that you have an eternal destiny and that you are joined in the timeless life of God, to know that and to not share that with others is a sin against the gospel. I didn't expect a lot of amens there. But it's the truth. It's a sin against God. And it is certainly a sin against those people that you know that you're fine to sit there and cross your arms and let them go to hell. Josh, you didn't get those steel-toed boots, did you? That we were going to pass out today. But it's the truth. It's the truth. So woe to me if I share not the gospel and I do not advance the kingdom of God. Okay, now listen, I understand that you may not be one to stand on a soapbox and preach. You may not be someone who can stand on the street corner and hand out tracts. You you may not be comfortable going up to someone and say, hey, are you a Christian? If you're not, you're going to hell. That may not be in your physical makeup. But here's my question for you then. Do the people at your work or the parents on your kid's soccer team or your neighbor's know more about your commitment to Christ than just the fact that you come to church twice a month? 
I mean, we live in Oklahoma. Come on. Everybody says they go to church. The guy has to hurry home from the strip club so he can get dressed to go to church on Sunday morning. The woman assassinates everyone she knows with her tongue, but yet she's on the second row shouting, Hallelujah, amen. I'm not talking about this second row. No, no, no. Holy Ghost people here. Holy Ghost resides on row two right here. Everyone in Oklahoma says, oh, yeah, I go to church. Oh, yeah, I go so-and-so. I go so-and-so. But the thing is, can those people see something different about the way you and I live our life so that they know that we are a follower of Jesus Christ? That our profession is backed up by our actions. Because I want you to know, while you don't stand on the street corner and preach, the gospel is contagious. And if we will let the light of Jesus Christ shine in the way that we live, in the way that we talk, in the way that we act, we will draw people. It will draw people to us, and then we can point them to Jesus Christ. You have an influence over those people around you. And if you hang out with them and you tell your off-color stories, you drop a few of the slang, hip cuss words, trying to fit in with the crowd, you are no different than the sinners. And I'm sorry if you think this is too tough, but we live in a world that is just about to see the rapture of the church. And when the church is gone, there is not going to be anybody to reach your friends and your relatives. We have got to get busy winning our neighbors and our friends to Jesus Christ. And just because your neighbor says they go to church, that does not mean that they know the Jesus Christ that you know. It is so comfortable to sit back, well, yeah, yeah I've asked them, yeah, they said no. Ask them again. Ask them again. The Holy Ghost will show you how to minister to those people who need Jesus. But we have to be willing to get out of our comfort zone. And that means some of us who wave the flag need to clean up our act a little bit if we are going to be a witness to those around us. Enough toe stepping. Let me get back to the bottle, the can, and the plastic about delusion. See, the Apostle Paul, he made sacrifices to make sure the real thing got where it was supposed to go. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 4, he says, I gave up the right to food and drink. In the previous chapter, chapter 8, he had talked about not, meeting, not eating meat that had been offered to idols. And he said, I don't have a problem eating meat that's been offered to idols, but I understand that there are people who are offended by that. And so if I need to become a vegetarian, I am going to lay my rights down in order that the gospel might be advanced to these people in Corinth. In verse 5, he says, don't I have a right? 
to take along a believing wife just like others do. But because it might be a hindrance, I am more passionate about advancing the gospel in your culture than I am with having a wife. Now, I know some of you brave guys would say, no wife? Why is that such a bad thing? I want you to know, Starla and I just celebrated a wedding anniversary this week, and I want to have another one, another anniversary, so I would never say anything like that. I can advance the gospel just fine with the wife I got. Paul says in verse 6, I gave up the right to a salary, even though I'm entitled to one. But he's saying, so you wouldn't think I was just after your money. I didn't want that to hamper you from coming to Christ. And so Paul would minister by day, and he would work by his hand at night to support himself so that he would not hinder the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gave up his right to food. He gave up his right to a wife. He gave up his right to a salary, all in order to be able to preach the gospel effectively. Now, my point is this. All of those were cultural things that Paul was entitled to. Paul had a right to. But Paul says, I don't have to have it my way as long as the message, as long as the real thing gets to the people who need the real thing. Because let's face it. Let's face it. The strength of any cause depends solely on the commitment level of the people involved in that cause. And only fanatics are going to make a difference in our world. The lazy and the lackadaisical, they have a hard time making a dent in their car, much less the world. But fanatics make a difference. And Paul was a fanatic for the gospel, giving up every right necessary in order to advance the name of Jesus Christ. But you see, that can also be a problem. Because fanatics can be better at turning people off than turning people on to a cause. And so the apostle Paul said... I'm not just someone that's going to stand on a soapbox. I'm not just someone who's going to just lay down my rights. But Paul said, I'm going to actually give up my liberties. And he said in verse 19, I have made myself a slave to any person's philosophy, any person's way of thinking in order to win more people. See, what he does is he practices responsible relevance responsible relevance. Here's what I'm talking about. Now, every place Paul went, his message was exactly the same. It was Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But Paul knew that people are shaped by their culture, they're shaped by their education, they're shaped by their families, and they're shaped by their religion. And so Paul says, I have adapted myself to every person's way of thinking in order that they might receive the gospel. And he explains what I'm talking about in beginning at verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. I gave up my liberty in order to win those who live under the law. Okay? Then to the pagans, the people at Corinth, because the Jewish religion was a heavy burden, Paul says, to those who are without law, I became like one not having law, but... But notice this, though I am not living under the law of Moses, I am not free from God's law, but I am continually under the law of Jesus Christ. 
And what he's saying is there are times when I go to minister to pagans and while I do what is necessary to relate to them and to be relevant to their culture, I am always under the law of Christ. I will not sell out my convictions in order to reach the world. You say, okay, Mike, that's great. I mean, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Today in some modern churches, in order to get people in the door, the leaders will turn their head and accommodate sin. They will wink at sin and lower the standards of holiness so people won't feel uncomfortable when they come in living the lifestyle that they live. It is so hard to tell the difference between so many so-called Christians and the sinners of this world. They're going to the same place. They're doing the same thing. They're watching the same thing. They're talking the same words. And so Paul says emphatically, I am willing to give up my culture, but I will not give up my convictions. Make no mistake, I'm going to be relevant to the culture I'm in, but I am under the law of Jesus Christ, so I am not going to smoke, I am not going to chew, and I'm not going to run with the girls who do. <laughs> Paul would adapt himself to those that he ministered to in order to win them for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so what that means for us today sitting here is that if you're old school and you like your Coke in a glass bottle, help yourself. Go for it. But if you've got tattoos and you've got piercings and you like your Coca-Cola in plastic, be trill, dude. Be trill. Because whatever the container, it doesn't matter. It's what's in the container that matters. And the fact is, our world needs Jesus Christ, and our world needs the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the only thing for today, and we need to do whatever we need to do so that people can experience him. And that is going to happen through the power of the Holy Spirit that is more real for today and more needed today than it's ever been before. But while I'm on the Holy Ghost bandwagon, let me, let me explain this. You know, when people received the Holy Spirit when I was a kid, it was always in the same way. There's a little old lady, her hair's up in a bun, and if you were hungry for the Holy Ghost, she'd come down and she'd slap you on the chin hollering, let it go, let it go, let it go, just let it go. Let it go, son, let it go. At the same time, at the same time, there was this guy who was usually your Sunday school teacher, and he was slapping you on the back saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let it go, hold on, let it go, hold on. So we had a schizophrenic experience of how to receive the Holy Ghost. Now, they meant well. They loved God. They were full of the Holy Ghost, but they wanted you to experience the power of God the same way they experienced it back in 1950. So ladies and gentlemen, we need to be less concerned with the expression of previous generations and more concerned with the theology that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what the world needs today. However it comes, glass, tin, or plastic. Our world, our city, our neighborhood, our church needs Jesus. 
and whatever it takes. If a different mode of expression means the gospel experiences reaches other generations and put it in plastic, put it in tin, or put it in glass, it doesn't matter. But we need to get Jesus and the entirety of the New Testament gospel into as many people as we possible as we possibly can. Paul said in verse 22, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Paul changed the world with, with his passion. And then he sold out man or woman that we know about from days past brought that same passion. The founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, said this, what God had was all of me. John Wesley wrote in one of his journals, on the way to Nottingham today, I was held up by a highwayman and I witnessed to him. Even though my dad has been gone almost 10 years, because of a God-inspired plan, he is still winning the loss to Christ today. Fanatics with a passion can change this world, but sometimes it seems we value the expression more than we value the experience. And so we just need to make sure that our culture isn't keeping the true gospel from getting through to every single person who needs it. Second Corinthians chapter 5:14 says, "The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us." And you know, I really don't think most people fully grasp how passionately God loves lost people. I mean, after all, He gave His only Son for you. For me, for that neighbor, for that neighbor, for that neighbor, for that neighbor, for that neighbor. God gave his son. Many years ago, when my boys were little, so little, matter of fact, we didn't even have Cecily yet. But we were at Disney World, and we were watching the big finale parade. <laughs> that they have at the end of the night, all the festivities, all the noise and everything. And I look down, and my oldest son, Doc, is gone. I mean, just seconds before, seconds before, he was, he was sitting on the curb right at my feet. But now he wasn't there. Well, if you're a parent, you understand the panic that just, just I mean, just grips your heart. It skips a beat. And we looked all around, we looked all around, but he still wasn't there. We couldn't see him. So we expanded frantically our search. And so I understand just a little bit about what Paul meant when he said the love of Christ compels us. Because even though that parade was going on that cost thousands of dollars to put on, we went through the crowd, we interrupted the parade, we grabbed every security officer we could find to help us find our five-year-old little boy. We weren't embarrassed about talking to people we didn't know. We pleaded for their help because nothing else at that time mattered. When yours is lost, you don't worry about intruding or interfering or interrupting. Well, friend, can you tell that's the heart of God? Can you feel his heart bleeding this morning? God is saying to each one of us, help me. 
help me, your neighbors, the people you interact with, your family, your coworkers, help me reach them. My son Jesus has already come to earth. He died. He's back up in heaven with me now. So all I have left on earth is you. You are my hands. You are my feet. You are my voice. And God is saying to each one of us, help me win the lost. Does the love of Christ compel you? Will we help the Father? I don't know much, but I do know this. I know that the love of God can change lives because his love changed mine. And so even if we have to forego our personal likes, even if we have to become all things to all men, as long as we don't remove ourselves from the law of Christ and we reach out to them, people will come to know Jesus. Short of sinning, I want to do what's necessary to help God 